Today from the Global Lane, Nation on the Brink, Crimes Against America. This is all the left's takedown, and they defunded the police, they denigrated the police, and now Americans are left to, to defend themselves. Two-tiered justice system in the USA. Is the FBI fighting crime or playing politics? No one was fired in that uh, Clinton uh, email scandal and in the Russia collusion delusion. The top uh, echelon of the FBI needs to go. The debt ceiling deal moves through Congress and kicks the deficit can down the road. We have to get on top of these liabilities that are spiraling out of control. There's no chance that it's going to happen with this Congress and with this president. Is it revolutionary? No. Is it better than the alternative? Yes. Is this what Walt would do? Disney's new series about a teen impregnated by the devil. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. A nation on the brink. Crime unchecked in American cities. Migrants pouring over the border. Fentanyl drugs murdering American youth. What or who is behind this effort to unleash chaos on the people of the United States? Well, here to provide some insights is former prosecutor, Fox News legal analyst and co-host of The Five, Judge Janine Pirro. Her new book is Crimes Against America, The Left's Takedown of Our Republic. Judge Janine, it's a pleasure to see you again. First, a three-year COVID pandemic. Now all of this. So why is it happening to America? I think that there's an effort on the part of many people to take down this country, to make this country uh, instead of the exceptional uh, blessed nation that it is, uh, to turn it into a country where it is not exceptional in any way and where America is last. And the people who want to do that are, are the ideologues and people on the left that we have watched for the last several years try to destroy this nation, um, starting with, uh, you know, those protests in 2020 when they tried to burn down cities and, and the mainstream media convinced us, oh, these are peaceful protests while buildings are burning down behind them. And in your opinion, how are immigration and an open southern border a part of that plan? We are no longer a sovereign nation uh, with borders. We are nothing more than a globalist landing spot with benefits for anyone who demands that they enter and uh, then demand that they be uh, given the cornucopia of benefits, education, medication, housing, and all of the social safety net that we give American citizens. And make no mistake, I mean, we are all immigrants uh, and no one has a problem with that. But most of us, I would say, pretty much all of us came in legally. Our families respected the process. They swore allegiance to this nation. My father was a veteran from World War II, my grandfather as well. And now they come in, they don't, we don't even know who they are, you know, and a governor's had to go to court to force the Biden administration to at least give them an alien registration number because the Biden administration was simply, you know, releasing them en masse into the interior of the United States. So we don't know who's a pedophile, who's a drug dealer, who's a terrorist, MS-13 gang member, identity thief, a drunk driver who thinks he can beat his wife. And, you know, there are many who come here to work. There are. But if we don't have the ability to distinguish, then how are we to keep American citizens safe? If we don't have the ability to distinguish, 
How is it that New York City now has thrown kids out of gyms in order to put illegals in those gyms and kids are being forced to literally or, 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 or figuratively play sick ball in the streets? So and that doesn't even mention the cartels and uh, being operational at the border, fentanyl being, uh, you know, brought in from China in their undeclared war against the United States, uh, imprinted into pills in Mexico where they're laundering money and then divvied up through arteries in the United States. And in your book, you discuss the lockdowns early in the covid pandemic and how that has harmed an entire generation of young Americans. All of the public schools in this country were closed during COVID. Catholic schools are open, charter schools are open, Lutheran schools are open, they're open in China, they're open in Russia, they're studying quantum physics, but not our kids. They're suffering emotionally, psychologically, academically. And I start the book, Crimes Against America, the left's takedown uh, of our republic with the fact that so many of our kids who are graduating from school can't even read or write proficiently that is a consequence of teachers not being involved in schooling and reading, writing, arithmetic, but instead involved in critical race theory, convincing white kids that they're supremacists, that they're oppressors, they should, should feel bad about themselves. And schools now trying to convince our kids that they're of one gender or of whatever gender they feel like. And that created the whole mess in Virginia, which got Glenn Youngkin elected, where parents' daughter a couple went in, their daughter had been raped in the girls' room, in the girls' bathroom, by a guy who that day identified as a girl. And the guy went in and raped the daughter. The parents are outraged. They go to a school in Virginia. And what happens? The police and the school board arrest the parents. And then Merrick Garland, our, uh, our, you know, the head of the Department of Justice, the attorney general says that parents are domestic terrorists and they're a threat to teachers. Are you kidding me? This is why I wrote the book Crimes Against America. It is why and how the left is taking down this country. And they are now uh, they are now embedded with the mainstream media and they have the loudest voices in the room. We're seeing crime skyrocket in some of our big cities in Los Angeles recently. Bicyclists assaulted a man downtown in broad daylight. Many criminals go unpunished, and now before calling a grand jury, New York DA Alvin Bragg charged former Marine Daniel Penny for accidentally choking Jordan Neely to death on a subway. This is all the left's takedown. It started when Barack Obama, who was a Marxist, uh, a student of Karl Marx, when he said that there's going to be a transformational change in America. And they defunded the police. They denigrated the police. And now Americans are left to their own, uh, you know, to, to, to defend themselves, just like that Marine did uh, a week and a half ago on a subway car in New York City. When he took up the cudgeon and he protected those people in a moving subway car that was locked underground as a schizo schizophrenic uh, psychotic in the middle of an episode says, you know, he doesn't care if he goes to jail for life or if he dies. That tells you he's suicidal and homicidal. And now they've charged him with manslaughter. Our criminal justice system isn't about justice. It's about political and, and identity politics. It's about weaponizing the justice system, whether it's the federal department of justice or the local DA. And I know of what I speak here. When you've got Soros funded DAs, whose job is to let criminals out of jail and tell the victims too bad, you had a bad go of it, uh, or who are convinced 
that whatever happened, it's due to the fact that the criminal had no choice but to brutalize another human being, then we're not going to be that shining city on the hill that Ronald Reagan so eloquently described. Uh, And we are certainly uh, not going to be America first. Okay, in a moment, more with Judge Jeanine Pirro and a look at the Nashville Shooters Manifesto, the criminal justice system, and a politicized FBI. More now with Judge Jeanine Pirro. Her new book is Crimes Against America, the Left's Takedown of Our Republic. Two months after the Nashville shooting at the Presbyterian Covenant School, the public has yet to see that manifesto of the shooter, transsexual Audrey Hale. Why is that? You know what? Uh, They say the FBI gave as a reason for not releasing the manifesto of the transgender shooter. They say that it would be too dangerous. I don't know what that means, and I don't think anybody knows what that means. But ultimately, uh, I think that there may be, you know, another agenda going on. I can't imagine what it is. I can't tell you what's in their minds. But I don't know why we could see everybody else's manifesto and not this one. As a former prosecutor, I've got to ask you to share your thoughts on what many Americans believe is a two-tiered justice system with political prosecutors and a politicized FBI. The top uh, echelon of the FBI needs to go. I think we learned from Jim Comey that he wasn't beyond uh, corruption uh, and lying to Congress and getting out there and protecting Hillary Clinton from the email scandal, saying no reasonable prosecutor would prosecute her. Well, he's wrong. I would. Uh, And, uh, you know, no one was fired in that uh, Clinton uh, email scandal and in the Russia collusion delusion, which the Durham uh, report convinced us and, and reported there was no collusion with Russia. And in fact, Hillary Clinton made it all up and she told Barack Obama and Joe Biden that she was going to make up this hoax to get the press off of her email scandal and her erasing 33,000 emails, which is obstruction of justice, destruction of evidence, uh, as well as classified documents. So, you know, the FBI has to be revamped. The hot, the, look, main, the main level of men and women are fantastic. I've worked with them for decades. Uh, But the upper echelon has been politicized and we've seen it. And I actually talk about it in Crimes Against America. We've seen it uh, in in terms of Hillary uh, and in terms of Donald Trump, you know, lying to a FISA court and and then going back to a judge to re-up a warrant. If attorneys came before me and put a false affidavit before me that they knew was untrue, I'd have their law license. They would never appear again. But Jim Comey never fired anybody. He never suspended anybody. And neither did Christopher Ray. So whether it's Strzok, Page, McKay, Comey, Christopher Ray, it's all the same nonsense. So how do we reverse course? Are elections the only answer? Because voters in left-leaning cities like Chicago keep electing leftist leaders and prosecutors. Well, I think I think the problem uh, can only be solved when people understand that the election of district attorneys w- uh, is far more important than they ever realized. I ran for DA uh, three times. I was elected, reelected, and reelected. And um, the truth is that one of my messages to my community, which is a, a Democrat community, and I'm a you know Republican, conservative, independent, my message was: You need me. You need me because I'm a tough prosecutor. 
I'm going to make sure that your businesses uh, stay in business, that uh, your home values continue to go up, that your children and your families and you are safe. That is the obligation, that the first order of government. And when you have prosecutors who are convinced that the criminals are the victims and they let them out of jail, or we have this nonsense social justice cashless bail absurdity, as though bail is some 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 unnecessary imposition. Bail is in the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution. So, uh, and you've got to make sure that you don't you don't elect an insurance lawyer to be the DA. They know nothing about prosecuting. And you've got to make sure the people on the school board share the same values that you do, that they don't believe in transgender uh, education and indoctrination to our kids. And that's the most important thing that we can do is these low level races are extremely important. And I talk about this in Crimes Against America uh, that you can get on Amazon or judgejbooks.com, judgejbooksingular.com. What you need to do how you need to argue, and what has happened to this great nation. You know, America is that shining city on the hill, and I want to keep it that way, just the way Ronald Reagan described it. Okay, the book is Crimes Against America, The Left's Takedown of Our Republic. Judge Jeanine Pirro, thank you for sharing your insights. It's a pleasure talking with you. God bless. Thank you, and God bless you and your listeners and viewers. The Congressional Budget Office projects the debt ceiling budget compromise negotiated by Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy and President Biden may only reduce the federal deficit by one and a half trillion dollars over the next 10 years. So does the legislation go far enough or is it the best that Speaker McCarthy could get from a divided Congress and the White House? Well, here to share his thoughts is Young Voices commentator, associate professor of economics at Texas Tech University, Alexander Salter. Alex, thanks for being with us. So members of the Conservative Freedom Caucus are not happy with this. Some say McCarthy caved to the Democrats. They may try to remove him from the speakership. So what do you think? Good deal, bad deal, best deal possible? I think it's simultaneously not good enough to fix our unsustainable fiscal problems and the best deal that we could get under the circumstances. Let's remember that the Republicans have only a very small minority in one chamber of Congress. We're going to need much more ambitious legislation to actually fix U.S. federal government finances, but we can't get that until we have Republicans in control of the House and the Senate and the White House. Given the circumstances, I think that this is actually a pretty good arrangement. Is it revolutionary? No. Is it better than the alternative? Yes. I think that in this case, it makes perfect sense to take what we can get, depart the field, and call it a win. Well, it seems like it's slowing the spending, and but it does kick the can down the road. Seems like all the tough budget cutting decisions will be uh, left to the next Congress and the president elected in 2024. So how dangerous is that kicking the can down the road? It hasn't worked very well in the past, has it? Let's not forget that the last time that Republicans had undivided control over government in fiscal year 2018 and fiscal year 2019, they upped spending even larger than the final years of President Obama's administration. So as much as Republicans like to talk a big game about fiscal sustainability, they don't seem to be able to deliver. Nonetheless, right now, based on where the parties are, I think that undivided Republican control is our last best hope for serious reforms. Let's not forget that this budget deal only affected 25% of federal expenditures, non-defense discretionary. If we want to get serious about fiscal reforms, there's no getting around it. We have to tackle Social Security. 
We have to tackle Medicare and Medicaid. We have to tackle veterans benefits. We have to get on top of these liabilities that are spiraling out of control. There's no chance that it's going to happen with this Congress and with this president. I'm hopeful that in 2025, things will look a little bit better, but we're gonna have to buck the trend and get Republicans that are actually committed to paying our budgets. Alex, what do you think this agreement means for business and our economy? Already manufacturers are praising it. Why are they praising it? There's a good amount of stability coming out of this. We understand what's going to happen to the federal budget over the next couple of years. When you factor in the fact that expenditures on non-defense discretionary are staying flat this fiscal year, a 1% increase next year, when you factor in inflation, that actually means that Uncle Sam will actually be consuming fewer actual resources, leaving more resources in the hands of the productive private sector, where people have an incentive to put that wealth to use, create jobs, create goods and services. So I think the business community likes that. Now, of course, we also have to worry, regardless about what's happening with inflation or not, what is happening to the public sector's overall share of consumption? Is the public sector getting bigger, smaller, or staying the same relative to the private sector? So long as we get this deal in place and we also have modest economic growth, I think the next two years are looking pretty good. I think that this is a step in the right direction. I think this sets the stage for more ambitious reforms in 2025 if everyone involved plays their political cards right. Of course, we also need to consider the possibility that the Republican Party will once again snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory by nominating, frankly, subpar candidates, as they did in the last electoral cycle. And that now has fiscal consequences in terms of being able to actually write and strike deals. What do you see happening this summer and by the end of this year? Lower inflation, but more people working, higher interest rates, recession. What do you see happening? I think the most likely outcome over the next couple of months is that we are not going to see a recession. Let's keep in mind, a recession is a cyclical phenomenon. What that means is you would expect markets to dip and then come back up. If markets get hurt right now, it's because we're currently suffering under a regulatory burden that makes the economy permanently less capable of turning inputs into outputs, producing jobs, producing goods and services. So in order to fix that, we need to get the regulatory barriers out of the way. Now, the permitting reform in the energy sector is promising. That actually might be able to do some of that. But I think that if we want to get back to historic rates of economic growth in this country, again, we need a broad-based reform that not only gets our finances under control so we stop siphoning away resources from the productive sector, but we also need a wide, widespread reform of administrative law. We need to streamline regulations. We need to put Congress back in charge. We need to make sure the business community understands that irrational, capricious rules are not going to be written ad hoc by regulatory agencies that have no accountability to the people. That should be the long-term goal. Okay, we'll see what happens. Young Voices commentator, Texas Tech University Associate Professor of Economics, Alexander Salter. Thank you, Alex, for taking the time to set us straight today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome to the Corporate States of America, where companies not only sell you their products, but also push a woke cultural agenda on their customers. By now, you probably know about Anheuser-Busch's debacle putting transsexual Dylan Mulvaney on Bud Light cans and Target's Pride Tuck-friendly swimwear and accessories line. Those decisions have cost the two companies to lose at least $25 billion in stock value. And it makes you wonder why their CEOs still have their jobs. Anyway, now Disney, the company that lost at least $300 million by promoting homosexuality in the animated kids' movies Lightyear and Strange World, is at it again.
I guess Disney hasn't learned its lessons, folks. Courtney Faber posted videos on TikTok of her family's visit to Disneyland. One of them has received 8 million views. It shows her daughter greeted by Nick, the fairy godmother's apprentice, as she enters the Bibbidi-Bobbidi-Boo boutique. And the conversation may have gone something like this. Mommy, why does that princess have a mustache? Oh, honey, because some princesses are boys. Folks, Nick is probably a kind person. He seems friendly, but really? Do you want cross-dressing men greeting your kids in the Magic Kingdom? I'd rather have Mickey there. Well, how about them watching a new show about an 18-year-old impregnated by Satan? That's Disney's latest project. They've agreed to stream the six-part German-produced series on Disney+. Plus. The show's name is Pauline. It's produced by the same people who created the Netflix show How to Sell Drugs Online Fast. The producers say Pauline is, quote, close to their hearts. They're thrilled that Disney loves the coming-of-age story as much as we do. Don't get me wrong, I'm not encouraging a boycott of Disney. That's for you to decide as parents. But you should let Disney know how you feel. Movie Guide chairman and founder Ted Bear is calling on parents to petition Disney Plus to stop the release of Pauline on their platform. Bear wants to keep, quote, twisted and disturbing content from corrupting our children's values and beliefs. Remember the popular saying back in the 1990s, what would Jesus do? Maybe it's time the folks at Disney start asking themselves, what would Walt do? I can't imagine Walt Disney would have approved of a series like Pauline or the company's anti-family agenda. And folks, we just can't wave a magic wand like the fairy godmother in Cinderella and say bibbidi-bobbidi-boo and poof, Disney and other woke corporations will return to the way they were 20 years ago, only selling their products and services. Those days are gone. CEOs now believe they must force their ideas on the public and change the culture. Their mission today has gone far beyond only making profits. But when the family-friendly public expresses outrage and says, we've had enough, we're not buying what you're selling, it gets the attention of stockholders who lose money because of bad decisions. So folks, let's keep the faith. Let's pray corporate CEOs come to realize it's more profitable to stay out of the culture war. And let's remember to put our faith into action. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, YouTube, Rumble, social media, and SoundCloud. And until next time, be blessed.